Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me in an empty yet sunny capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Rob Chester, UK Managing Director of NSF, a public health and safety organization. Rob, hello. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. Um, Normally, uh, we'd uh, get straight uh, to leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak, we should pause and discuss that for a short period. How has it affected your business? Um, it's it's been a dramatic impact. Um, I'm, I'm someone who has dealt with a lot of crises in my career, but I've never quite seen anything like the last uh, three or four weeks in business. It's been a um, it's been a very traumatic, very difficult time. Um, now we're lucky in the NSF International. We have quite a diversified business, so. Unlike many businesses, we, we have still got quite a few aspects of our business that are carrying on, um, but we've had some other parts of the business that are really, um, really heavily impacted. So, yeah, it's, it's certainly uh, trying times, and therefore a discussion about leadership. Um, as one of my old mentors used to say to me, you, you don't judge leaders in the good times, you judge them in the bad times. And, and mm. so I think it's a, it's a nice segue into leadership anyway. And what sort of actions have you taken to ensure social distancing within your workplace? Yeah, I mean, we've we've done, uh, firstly, we always obviously look at and follow the government guidance as it gets produced and as it comes out. Um, uh, we also have a global organization, so we're able to look and learn and listen to other parts of the world because we're in 90-odd different countries, and so... We have the full spectrum around the NSF world. You know, we've got China and, and, and Korea and Japan who are recovering to some degree. Uh, and so we can learn from them in terms of how they're recovering, what's working, what's not working. And then we have, um, we have a, a, a very large business in the United States, which is currently in the absolute thick of the, uh, of the crisis and, and, and of the issue. So um, we've, we've done a lot. We've followed the government guidance, obviously. And then what we've tried to do is we've, we've tried to do a little more than the, than the minimum. So if I just give you one example of that, as, as the government um, uh, covers 80% of salaries, we decided to top that up by a small amount for those colleagues that were furloughed, um, which has been well received. And, and each NSF country has been encouraged to do a little more in different areas. So yes, we've um, we we've tried to do a little more than the minimum, um, whilst trying to keep the customers looked after that are continuing and are carrying on, uh, and at the same time um, look after the colleagues if they're affected or if they're continuing to work because those that are left behind and continuing to work right now are obviously under 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 extra stress as well. Naturally, yes. Um, do you believe that this is going to have a long term effect on your business? Yes, I do. I think it's going to have a long-term effect on almost every business. I think um, no business has seen a crisis like this for a prolonged period, and um, and therefore for for my uh, for my money and the way that I'm looking at my business right now, uh, it is it is absolutely essential to pivot. It's absolutely essential to honestly evaluate. Uh, where you currently stand, what your customers are going to want in the future, and 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 try your best to to estimate what's going to be on the other side of this. So 
managing the crisis effectively in the short term is obviously crucial, but longer term, it's also going to be trying to do your best to understand what are the longer term impacts of this going to be and, and how can we reflect that in our business as we go forward. How are you going to handle the transition back to normal duty? Um, well, uh, firstly, we will look to learn from other countries. I mean, we have some countries who have now got back to a period of, of good normality and, and are reintroducing uh, previous work practices that they have in place, but that they've done that quite um, in a quite a different way. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I was talking to my compatriot in Korea today. As they've reopened their office, they have done it in, in thirds. So they have some colleagues that are working Monday and Tuesday, some colleagues that are working Wednesday and Thursday, some colleagues that are working uh, Friday and Saturday. And, and they're doing that because the social distancing is not something that's going to go away quickly or overnight. And, and therefore, they knew there was going to be an adjustment period that colleagues were going to have to go through as, as business tries to return to some relative normality. So. We, we will certainly look to learn from, from those businesses that have already had to go through that to see what we can do. And, and, and we will involve the colleagues. I'm a big fan of always um, involving people in decisions like this because the people are going to have to are going to have to live with whatever you get introduced. So if you can involve them in the process of what you're thinking and what they're thinking, I think that just it, it just helps to get people on the journey with you. So you really believe in collaborative leadership? Um, I do. I do. Now, 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 there are times when that doesn't work, and crisis management can be one of those, to be honest. So when you're in the, in the heat of a crisis, mm. I think it's really important for leaders um, to move at the speed of the crisis, not the speed of their organization. Mm. Um, and that's because um, a crisis like this that comes along if you do not move at the speed of it, you, you're basically going to get overtaken by it. And, and therefore, I, I, by notion, yes, I am a very collaborative leader. Um, I, I've learned the hard way that most leaders don't have all the answers. And therefore, trying to, to, to lead in a consultative way can be a very good approach. But I think leadership has to vary based on the circumstances you're in. If you're in a crisis situation, you don't act the same way as you do in a very calm situation where you have lots of time to make decisions. So I think one aspect of leadership that is really important is to vary your style and vary your circumstances based on the situation that you're in. And if you don't do that and you're very one-dimensional, then you can often end up with a bad approach depending on the circumstances you find yourself in. What's the most important thing that a leader should remember when dealing with their staff? Um, I, I don't think there's one thing. I mean, I, obviously, honesty is, I think, always the bedrock of any relationship with employees and employers. I think it's really important that honesty and dealing with people as straight as you possibly can is really crucial. And I think um, COVID-19 is, is showing again why that's, um, why that's important. There isn't a much of a point glossing over situations like this. People are looking for, for honesty. They're looking for transparency about how you're making decisions and what you're doing. And therefore, I think communicating really well, 
um, being honest. But but I'd also say the other thing that they look for at times like this is, is people do want hope. You know, they, they do want to know that on the other side of this, there is going to be a, a business there that's going to have a good future. Um, so I think it's a, it's a mixture of honesty, good communication, but also um, and a, a hopeful a hopeful view of the future and how it's going to pan out. Let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Were there any particular influences on you, whether they be role models or circumstances that formed the way that you lead today? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, yes, I mean, I, 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 my father was the biggest influence on me, and 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 he he told me several things as a young man that I really. Um, I've, I've tried to live by through my um, career. Um, one of the things he told me very early was back to the point about leaders not having all the answers. Um, I remember him saying to me when I was about a 17-year-old, look, Rob, the, the two most important questions you can ask in your career when you have a problem is, number one, who's had that problem before? And number two, what do they do about it? Because most people don't do that. When they're faced with a problem, they um, think that no one's ever faced that problem before, and that will categorically be wrong. So the first thing you should think when you get a problem or an issue is who can you go and learn from? Who, who's had a similar challenge before, and, and what did they do about it? Um, I lost my parents when I was very young, but I was also um, very indebted to um, my Uncle Albert, who who was brilliant to me as a youngster. and and. I remember because I'd lost my mum and dad by the time I was 18 and, and he took me to one side and told me the story of so many influential, mm. famous people who had lost parents when they were very young. And and that transformed me. As a lot. You know, I, I went from seeing what, what you know, I think when, every, when anybody loses parents when they're very young, you can react to that in very different ways. You know, some people can see that as a, as a right, I'm going to show them. And, and turn it into a, 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 a motivational thing, but, but others can deal with it very, very differently. So, yeah, I think I, I was very lucky to have some really good influences early on in my career. But then secondly, when I got into the workplace, I was also fortunate to have some really outstanding leaders who, who gave me some, often some very hard lessons about, about how to lead and, and, and what to do but also some stuff, some stuff that stuck with me. But one, one tip my father gave me before he goes was, right, Robert, whenever you work for a leader, when you finish working for them, write down one thing that you're going to copy and you're going to take forward, and one thing that they did that was disastrous and you want to leave behind. Um, and went on to explain that his thinking basically was that, look, if over your career you, you write down one thing that every boss is good at, over time, you're creating a bit of a playbook for, for what leadership should look like. Um, I religiously stuck to that, and therefore, whenever I've, I've, I've been lucky to work for well over a dozen, 13 bosses in my career, and therefore, when I've finished working for each one, I've tried to copy one aspect of what they do. And, and luckily, because I've worked for some great leaders over the time, I've, um, I've copied some of, their, some of the things that worked and left behind some of the things that didn't. Well... I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you, and unfortunately our time together has drawn to its close. But I'd love to have you back on the program um, at some point when we have a bit more time to chat 
because uh, you're an absolutely fascinating chap to uh, have a conversation with. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, and like I said, we'll have you back on soon. My pleasure. I'd love to come back on that. I've got some random thoughts, as I always do on every subject, as my, as my leadership team always tell me. <laughs> nice Fantastic. to speak to you. Pleasure. That was Rob Chester, UK Managing Director of NSF. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive 
um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was Mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the, I think it was the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, (laughs) like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. (laughs) And I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one, drawing that game at the Oval to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was 
I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of. A litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. 
um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were 
Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so <laughs> was, was I yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney in australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, 
all the guests, or any other person therein associated.